Om Dayo Shanti Antarikshan Shanti Pritivi Shanti Apa Shanti Oshadaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shanti Vishwe Deva Shanti Brahma Shanti Sarvam Shanti Shanti Reva Shanti Sama Shanti Edi May peace be on earth May peace be in heaven May peace be in the waters May peace be among the herbs and plants May peace be among the gods May peace be in the whole universe May that peace Real peace dwell in each one of us and in all living beings. We're going to have fun today, so that's the mood I hope we're in. I, we're, we're conveniently located, you know, to many churches, schools, and firehouses. I can direct you to a more serious church, if you wish, just down the street. So uh, prepare yourselves for a comic enterprise. Today is Western Science and Eastern Spirituality. So I'm going to start off with a little song by our beloved friend, Sebastian Temple, who I know is giving me permission <laughs> from Gloryland to sing his song for you, which was inspired by Teilhard de Chardin. Shall we hide the truth from man? The gods all cried where he was made. How can we guard our secret now? Ask each other most afraid. Hide it in the earth, he will find it. Hide it on the mountain, he will find it. Even in the sea, he will find it. Shall we hide the truth from man? Quite beside themselves they cry, a new guy will take our throne. We have made him far too small, not to make our heaven whole. Hide it in matter, he'll analyze it. Hide it in the water, he'll crystallize it. Even in hell, Hide it in the wind, he'll pursue it. 
Write it in the act, he will do it. Write it in the avenue, he will do it. There is a tragedy for man. Then they solve the mystery of the writing of the truth. The wiser says, let's take the truth. Hide it deep with hides I am. The wiser said, let's take the truth. Hide it deep inside him. Hide it in his heart, he will doubt it. Hide it in his soul, he'll live without it. Even if we shook, reveal and shout it, he won't believe the truth is in his word. Hide it in his heart, he will doubt it. Hide it in his soul, he'll live without it. Even if we should reveal and shout it, he won't believe the truth is in his word. So the East and West, uh, you know, you'd never want to become as absent-minded as your brother Shiva is. So let me do that for you. Carl, would you please bring me the rest of the folder? <laughs> See, I put it down there first, and that's what's my thumb that I find here. So the East and the West, the East and the West. Probably what is the greatest, almost certainly, what is the greatest thing happening today is the East and West are finding each other. And in the case of India and, and uh, you know, the Western science, the field of Western science for the Greeks, these are cousins, you know, coming back together after a long sojourn, maybe 2,500 B.C., they're all sitting around a lake, some flew east, some flew west, and some flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> and now we have the Sanskrit tongue, part of a family of languages, our grandmother tongue, that gave us Sanskrit and Persian and Norwegian and Greek and Latin and English. And of course, we can hear the, the echo of the grandmother tongue in English, Vedanta, Veda, insight, Latin video, I see, American Video TV. <laughs> and onto, onto, end. The end of the Vedas, the end of insight by those women and men that climbed above the timber line way under BC and in India and found out something more deep than the atomic understanding that we are one and that we are one with all that is. So, I was in India some time ago, and they asked for three Americans to get up on the podium and talk to balance off, I don't know, maybe 11 Russians that had come to town that day in the Institute of Culture. And we talked about this, and I got myself in a bit of a tangle, which I continually want to work my way out of for Swami Lokeshwaranda's sake. My idea is that the West thinks after the fact. I'm sorry. The West thinks before the fact, and India thinks after the fact. They, they base everything on experience. It's called induction. And the West starts with questions from experience, but then goes and sits in the closet in the private room. You know, Einstein said, where's your laboratory? He said, right here, behind his ears, his pencil. And in something very close to contemplation and a selfless devotion to truth, the scientists... Think about it. Remember the story of the, the wife that said to her husband, well, you know, the day's half gone, and you haven't done anything about all those things that we said we're going to get done today, you're going to get done. He said, well, it's half done. 
She said, what do you mean it's half done? He said, I figured out how to do it. <laughs> but the point is that the scientist will then say, well, I see, I see deductively. I, I see in my mind this pyramid of, of implications, and I'll work it out mathematically, and then I'll have a deductively, theoretically derived schemata that has to have some way that I can predict an experimental result, even if it's good, predict a whole lot of things in the future. They haven't proved Einstein wrong yet. You know, every few days another one comes up, Einstein. And then they go and test it with induction. India has the grand experience. In whatever state, waking state, dreaming state, superconscious state, and then they bring the ample powers of reflection and reason to try to spell it out, to tell and sing about it. So that's what we're going to do today. You know the story of the ear. It's a wonderful story. I think it's just a great story. So you see, my problem was I got in, I said in an article that he wanted printed, I said, and the West still thinks after 2,000 years, and India sees vision, and the East sees visions. Well, I'll stand by that. And each with the ample powers of reflection that is really just God's own intelligence in us, isn't it? They spell out the meaning of their respective understandings. The story of the ear is very interesting. The question comes up. You've heard it many times. In the Sahara Desert, if a bomb goes off and nobody's there, is there any sound? Well, the modern version of that is if a man's in a forest and he says something and there's no woman there to hear it, is he still wrong? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> but, of course, if there's no ear, right? You know, kind of concrete, kind of com common sense. If there's no ear to hear the bomb in the desert, there's no sound. There's just waves of molecules floating around through the breeze. Well, what about a little animal, a cricket, or whatever they have out there in the air? Yes, then there would be sound. Well, supposing there's no cricket. Well, then you go into the realm of poetry. I love Gilbert and Sullivan. Abhavid and I are Gilbert and Sullivan addicts, actually, and then the pirates of Penzance. The pirates come ashore. And they're supposed to be talking whisperly, but they're coming out in booming voices. Atma tells me, I've been telling you, they're, they're spoofing, you know, all these operas, Sato Voce, but, and they're coming on shore. And they say, in effect, um, you know, that uh, with, with cat-like tread, we, we steal upon our prey, but boom, boom, boom. And then they say, a fly's footfall would be distinctly heard. Ah, oh, what is that? You see, ah, <laughs> it is the cat. But the pirates are coming on shore. Well, the Indians say that God, think of it, how beautiful this is, can hear the anklets on the ant's feet as they walk by. So is there really no sound? It's kind of a question. Let's dive into what my simple understanding, remember I'm a simple country boy of science might be in the modern day. Science has its creation story, and my creation story is much closer to the consensus, I call it the, the community of discourse of the modern day, than some of our wonderful people who are on the very frontiers of, of this analysis here in Vedanta. I'm still a Big Bang man, meaning that the evidence seems to have been so far uncontradicted, though there might be alternative ways of explaining it, since everything's rushing away from us, you know, Hubble found that out on Mount Wilson. 
right outside of Swamiji House, you can see Mount Wilson. Looks like it run the movie back, backward in time. It was at a point, say 13.7 billion years ago. Right after that, whatever was beginning to expand was in an unimaginable state. And don't you worry about for how long. It's an infinitesimal amount of time. But from, may we say, with our blending of vocabulary, infinity, came what was the seed origin of our universe. And there was no matter. Well, you could think of it as sort of like plasma, you know, energy in a, in a pre-molecular, pre-atomic state. But now some of the advanced souls in the scientific world are, are talking, well, it, it's kind of pre-matter and it's kind of pre-energy. But still, to get some kind of an idea of it, let's call it a cloud. Plasma was a good word uh, to me. It may be pre-Einsteinian, but whatever is coming out is highly dense. You know, a minute ago, it was all infinity and no emanation, no perception, no anything else. And it was opaque. You couldn't see through it. And as things begin to have this wonderful existence, I submit there must have been something like currents, movement. Of course, with movement, you get time. And with expansion, separation, you get space. If you have three salt shakers and you pull them apart, the angles between them, the gravity, the vectors, that creates space, you can say. Also, by virtue of space, you're pulling them apart. So space and time are created at the time of the Big Bang. But now the question is, in this plasma, which is not shining, what could be the first manifestation? I'll say ripples. And that, the scientists were saying a few years back, sounds very much to them like sound. And oh, how I wish I'd saved it right on the front page of the LA Times. In an article written by one of the scientific, good writer, he said, Om. The fun part is, my dear sisters and brothers, that astrophysics and mysticism is coming together. Samya Seshananda from the pulpit in Oregon said years ago, I love it. Uh, you know, this is my slice of the pie. You have your songs to sing. The scientists are our friends. The theologians are not our friends. The scientists are our friends. And now you know where the greatest beauty is coming from, I submit. It's coming from the scientists. And the greatest awe, and the greatest understanding, and the greatest depth. So, they use the word Om. India uses the word Om. I'm not trying to make anything torching the text here. I'm just trying to say, look here, what they're both saying. We're talking about something coming out that the Indians call, in the words of Ken Wilbur, the drive of God, toward God. Because it is as it expands, Swami Prabhupada says all the philosophies of India say this, it will again one day contract from infinity back to infinity. So now you're going to get your prayer. Remember, from out of Brahman floweth all that is. From out of Brahman all. Yet is he still the same. So we have here an idea that evolution itself of the universe and of humanity, and these things go together, astrophysics and the human. Why? Because the human is our example of a perceiver. 
as soon as you get anything at all, there is, my friends, according to the Eastern view and more and more the Western view, for example, Alfred North Whitehead saying an electron is a drop of experience, you get subjectivity. As soon as this emanation starts, soon to become now transparent, and there will be light, and there will be hydrogen falling together to form galaxies and stars and planets and trees in us. So as soon as you get anything at all, it has an experiential component. It has subjectivity. So there are two views of reality, the old scientific view up till Newton, which a lot of scientists still hang on to, you know, reductionists. There's one in this room who, I can't forget it, from my background in school where the chemistry teacher who reminded me of my dad, I found him in church on Sunday, no way of my knowing he'd be there from the chemistry class. If you see what I'm saying, he wouldn't admit it. And one of these pioneering dynamic spiritually inward and understanding scientists has a picture of Sri Ramakrishna in his office. So it's a new day. The two views of the old-fashioned view is that what is out there, you know, and how we see it involves an uninvolved perceiver. Or, on the other hand, an involved, therefore, subjectively experiencing point of experience. The new concept of a scientist who is experimenting, who is observing, who can't stand outside of the experiment and influences just by observing. Einstein speaks of a whole new physics. And everyone, I submit, who's brought the atomic age to birth is a mystic. Niels Bohr, Max Planck, the whole bunch of them. Heisenberg, Schrodinger's our own, he's called a, a neo-Vedantist. <clears throat> Classical physics and social sciences, which are slow to move, biology in between, they are still, some of them, holding on to a highly reductionist view that the world is a machine, that our body is a machine, everything works like that. You take it apart and you understand it, the only trouble is, I've thought of it many times, it has a connection with Latin, Latin grammar. If you take a cat, please forgive me, it's only a, a thought uh, thing, experiment, and you dissect the cat, you know, on the table. Here's a tail, here's a leg, this and that, the other. Awful hard to get that cat back together again walking around. So, ironically, it's at the level of microbiology, where reductionism, this idea that it's just chemistry and physics, and all of our emotions, and all of our life, and all of our Thinking is just a kind of an artifact of matter. It's ironic that it's in microbiology that the reductionists are having mainly their last hold uh, in, in physical science. It's ironic because it's right at that point of microbiology that the new physicists, the quantum physicists, are showing us a grand new world. A world that looks more like consciousness than it does like matter. And this is not just, you know, uh, kind of sentimental stuff, simple-minded stuff. Einstein had a very interesting experience as a young boy. He was, somebody gave him a magnet, and he said something deeply, he was a little boy, something deeply mysterious lies within. Because the magnet's here, and the, and the needle or whatever it is, metal is here, there's nothing between them. 
What's going on? So they all are showing a view that says, well, something's in there. Let's try to find it. <laughs> Apropos of our friend. How much of this universe you see is perceptual and subjective? Eyes and ears create almost the whole thing. Supposing we're talking not about that little bug in the desert, but a bacterium. You got no ears. But I submit, you decide yourself. It's a thought experiment. Einstein did it all the time. You can do it if you want to under the microscope. You have a shock wave. Some bang thing go up. And I assume that the, that the bacterium will shudder. I assume that he will feel it and he will move. Because irritability is one of the seven life functions. And after all, what is our hearing? It's just molecules on the tympanum of our ear at that level. We have to deal with reality in gear shifts. And the scientists working with the external world, even at the level of just saying it's a mechanism, his, his conclusions may be perfectly valid up to a huge point. So to me, the, the essential uh, sense is touch, don't you see? And that becomes then hearing. And sight is a very subtle form of that. It's no longer molecules, but photons falling on the eye from maybe 13 billion light years away, years ago, from a star galaxy. So the world that we see and hear is, to a huge extent, in the human dimension, largely of our own creation. So I probably used to love the phrase of Alfred North Whitehead, I think the greatest Western philosophy of the 20th century, who said, congratulate for the nightingale song, your own ear. And of course, the nightingale's here. Somebody got to be there to hear it. Take a flower. It presupposes an eye. You see, if there wasn't an eye that it was trying to, hey, hey, I'm here, of an insect or a bird or something, there wouldn't be any flowers. They came about a long time ago in the age of the dinosaurs. You were that? They all sat down one night and said, listen, we got to do something. We're getting eaten, you know, <laughs> all day long. So, and, and the little mammals coming out at night, you know. So what are we going to do about it? And they figured out, well, if we had a flower and a seed that would go into the ground, that'd give us six months at least to figure this thing out, and more of us would make it. And that's where flowering plants came from, from the dinosaurs. But everything in this universe, as we begin to explore it empirically, with a sense of adventure, with a sense of poetry in our soul, which is what I submit the modern scientists are all doing, it becomes totally interrelated. Music, where does that come from? Perhaps the heartbeat, surely the drum, the flute in the Peruvian forest is the essence of our unity with the forest, with the bird, with the human soul speaking, singing through the flute. It says, you know, while Europeans were doing other things, the Native Americans were bringing eloquence and dance into the highest levels of understanding. Well, after the transparency phase comes and, and we have this coalesced light becoming localized, islands of light, island universes and points of light, stars, after this original thing that looks like motion, that looks like sound, and we get molecules, we get the hydrogen atom, we find, as we pointed out, you can't take the observer out of the universe. 
if, as we see the universe now, following Whitehead and Heisenberg, the uncertainty principle man that said, I can't get out of this experiment. Not only that, but there's stuff going on I can't figure out. The rug looks okay, but on the edge of these tassels, at the edge of the rug of logical consistency of an objective world out there, an objective everything, hard rock material stuff, marbles, the rug is frayed. The logic doesn't hold up at the very edge. I can't see. If I get the place where an infinitesimal particle is, I can't tell where it's going and what the speed is. And I never will be able to. It's right there. John Dobson, whom I'm saving here, is he the dessert? Our own astrophysicist, philosopher, monk for 22 years in Northern California, says that's because basically the universe itself is illogical. The universe that we see is to a great degree created in our head. From the very beginning, you know, Kant saying that time and space are modes of perception. There's something about this space and time causation, this relative sound and light show that the Indians call Maya, that it's, got, it's a good show. It's a jolly good show. But at its deepest levels, it doesn't make sense. This seeming projection, something like the rays of the sun from Brahman. Arthur Eddington, one of the early scientists, you know, these people that helped Einstein on his way, says in a very early dimension of this new atomic age physics, you can't take mind out of it. You only take out the scientists of nature what their minds have put into it. The very questions they ask, wouldn't that be logical? Condition the answers they're going to get back. I mean, if you ask a child a question, a quiz on TV, obviously the answer should have some re relation to the question. That's what my dad always used to say to the kids in class, you know. <laughs> so we have, according to John, two kinds of causation. This is the Indian understanding written in modern terminology. The first one of the universe itself is apparitional causation. Jesus knows why, but this seeming marvelous phantasm is coming out and it is a mistake. It's seeing at late night a rope on a road in a national forest and thinking it's a rattlesnake. Now, I've walked along such a road at night and I've seen rattlesnakes coming down because it's still warm, you know. But we think that what we see is a snake and actually the underlying reality is spirit, is Brahman, according to the Indian view. So, there seems to be also, now we're going to a gear shift here, you have Brahman the absolute, you have the relative universe, yes, you can call it rays of the sun, but at the highest level of the experience of the saints and sages of India, for example, the mystics all around the world, they're talking about union with God. They're talking about becoming one with what is. They're talking about the unity which the scientists are searching for today in all of the scientists, sciences. That's why we're getting so close. And so the Indian creation story very interesting. As soon as you get discrete, individu individuated particles, 
which is probably false, you see, because we're so all so closely interrelated, but we think we're separate. Then you have a situation in which, supposing there were something that originally, in the form of God, a personal God, some kind of an emanation, some kind of a something or other that decided to create the world. And this God was kind of a collective consciousness of the seeming separate individuals who are about to become, soon to become in, into being. And they call him Ishura. This is the idea of the personal God. Well, he could hear the ants football. If there were something that represented all of our consciousnesses unified, then that consciousness would surely know what's going on in every part and particle, every location of this grand universe. So we have a question of the leaving of the awareness of unity and Brahman in various levels, you know, physical, mental, all these things. It's what is meant by Eden and humanity's differentiation, as Jung says, into individuation. We have, henceforward, this wonderful painting, as my friend Sam Klein points out, Renaissance painting, great painting of the School of Athens. They're all there on the steps walking down. And here's Plato with his finger pointing up, and Aristotle, whom Plato called his dearest disciple, with his finger pointing down. Aristotle, <coughs> the great classifier, the great analyst, the Western philosopher. Plato pointing up to the unity of the spirit, <clears throat> and Aristotle pointing down to matter. After we get these various concepts, sort of like a yo-yo, you have to throw it down before you have the joy of it's coming back up. The sign has been paddling around this pool for a long time, men of incredible dedication, men of incredible de devotion to truth, even at the cost of life itself. And now we're beginning to find each other, and they're beginning to sing their folk songs to us, and we're beginning to read our poetry of the inner spirit, Eastern spirituality having reached such high pinnacles with so many people. I mean, you know, we have our mystics in the West, and they, they are very heart and soul. Where we have five, India has 5,000. Where we have a couple of thousand years of history, they have hundreds and thousands. Even the man in the field, and I saw such a man following the bullock with a white turban and a white loincloth. Of course, I'd die if I was out there at 1 o'clock like he was, you know. He knows more, as I like to say, expanding the phrase of the Harvard professor that got Swami Vivekananda into the Parliament of Religions, than all of our Harvard professors put together. I kind of like to say Harvard professors. <laughs> because he knows that Brahman and Atman are ultimately and essentially one. So what we're finding here now in the world that we inhabit is what J. Allen Boone called so magnificently kinship with all life, the emergent recognition of unity by modern scientists, not just physicists, though that is, to me, the foundation of Western philosophy, astrophysics, but psychologists. I call them dynamic psychologists. I call them dynamic scientists. These are the ones that are seeing the world from an entirely different point of view. 
whereas we still have our concrete and skeptical scientists like Stephen Jay Gould, uh, eminent uh, uh, evolution man, who says, well, you know, this idea that we're getting better and better and evolution has a purpose and evolution has a, a building and all, I don't see it. I guess he's saying in his own wonderful way that the bacterium to him is as magnificent as the human at some level. Swamiji said, the earthworm is brother to the Nazarene. But that's because Swamiji saw the infinite spirit shining wherever he looked. May we reserve that privilege to our scientific brothers and sisters that they too may find the world of wonder wherever with their percipient subjective minds now they are touching the fabric of this universe. So Stephen Jay Gould says, well, I don't see much about this so-called great chain of being. However, there is a problem. I'll grant him that we have probably 70 different skulls, 70 different fossil remains of different kinds of human beings. If you're in a good mood today, you've got a hydrogen balloon, want to blow it up like the Macy Parade, let's say 70 species of humans. Think of all the members of the cat family, all the members of the dog family running around the earth today. Well, as a scientifically oriented person, I, I buy that. I think the scientific genesis, the scientific Bible, is in many ways expanded and deepening of one's spiritual elevation as much as Genesis. And so did Leakey. So did Brother Leakey, the great anthropologist who found old man in the old Duvai Garth. You know, it was his wife that found it. They worked together as a family. Sons, daughter-in-law, everybody. Yes, there is this situation in which the proliferation of human types is uh, really unassailable. It's there in the evidence. But that doesn't mean that something self-conscious was working its way to the top in the Lord's play of the universe. Hey, we're talking billions and billions of years. So though we're here, I don't think we need to think that we're like the main actor all that hot. If in fact, deity, spirit, capital S, has in this gear shift level, the you know, level of Ishwara level, chosen to select these little repositories for a little spark of in his own divine consciousness and intelligence, well, so be it. But after all, you know, we're talking about a rather thin layer of gray matter. And uh, we're talking about something that came pretty close after our birth, probably four years old anyway, the sense of ego, which gets in the way. But think of it to be a spark of the divine intelligence. So what do the dynamic sciences, scientists say? Well, they say that in this great chain of being, what we have is consciousness striving to become conscious of itself in the universe, having a huge, delightful drama. And Einstein saying, speaking of E equals MC squared, one of the great foundational understandings of our time, he said, this is the equation in which energy is set equal to matter. And he also says matter dropped out as a separate principle in physics in 1905 when he came to that conclusion. 
So the materialist scientists have some problems. They have one view, and we, if I may say so, the French world, we, huh? We have another. We say yes, they say no. And that other view is that, in fact, all is consciousness. And consciousness represents being. And being is one with bliss. Fritzhoff Kapra is very dear to us. He's one of the earlier ones of the modern day to say these things. Very dear to our hearts, being interested in physics and astronomy by John Dobson here. Uh, now we're finding that right through the spectrum, including the psychologists, maybe the last bastion, ironically, people are seeing the substratum even of our physical universe as energy. And energy more and more as being inside us as well as outside. And the very essence of our consciousness. There's something that I think is pretty interesting. There's something called the California School. We went to hear a pundit at UCLA some years ago, one of our devotees was working on her PhD there. And this man was something else. He was as good as they get. I mean, he was like a living encyclopedia, you know. <laughs> and uh, he thought the whole thing through. And he says, there is a school called the California School. He says, I don't see it myself, which sees an essential unity between, say, physics and chemistry, physics and Vedanta and mysticism. Well, we see it. We see it because such a marvelous human being as, as our own friend and devotee and brother, if we may call him so, elder brother, I call him the scoutmaster, <laughs> Lord Baden-Powell, and all the monks adore him. We're his elves, you understand. Um, he says, yes, um, you, you need to understand that uh, energy is the substratum. And all the phenomena that we see are parts of a different kind of causation. Apparitional causation in the first place. Marvelous, marvelous uh, kind of a, a magical trick covering our eyes so that we think that what we see as the outside world is really mostly on the back of our retina, right? Color is there. So many things are there. What John Locke called the, the secondary the secondary. Uh, uh, principles. Um, the primary principle being just simple blind things like extension. But the whole world that we salute when we get up in the morning, it's back here. And I think it was none less than, than, than Whitehead that said, sing these paeans of praise and salute your own mind. When Einstein was a little fellow, we talked about that before, and saw that magnet uh, attracting a piece of metal at a distance, he said something deeply hidden has to be behind things. Uh, there was nothing between. This one has to know that one. And that one has to know this one.
there's a new view out there now. I'm certainly not the one to say what's going to happen to it, but it's a very interesting view that comes back to the exciting state that we were in about 1965 when Fred Hoyle, who is a magnificent physicist, decided that something mysterious, as as Wordsworth said, something more deeply interfused is going on here. And he tried to think about it a lot and figure out what, what in the world it was all about. Uh, we're talking about a new kind of physics, which is relational physics. And man learns that he's not only outside the universe as a, you know, unconnected, independent observer that doesn't affect the experiment, but in some sense helps to create it through his perception. He not only watches the thing, but he messes up the experiment. He's part of a grand subjectivity, a unifying subjectivity, which deals at the level of the new relational physics. If you have Indian cosmology and you have science trying to understand what's going on with the left hemisphere, India has red and left hemisphere, then we have to try to decide, well, what is the story of the universe? Did it start? From a big bang? Well, I kind of like to think so. And what, may I ask, will be the future? It's quite possible, you know, that it'll just continue to expand until it kind of runs out of gas and becomes, through entropy, just something kind of, I don't know what, amorphous. But even now, the astronomers are saying, yeah, but you know, it looks to us like these black holes that are at the center of our, of our uh, galaxies, these black holes are sucking up all the matter next to them, and when they get in there, the equations just go to infinity? What's going on? John Dobson at the first modern parliament of religions in Chicago bumped into a, a cosmology, extra dividend uh, scientific uh, discussion that was going on for a week, and the guy practically broke out in a cold sweat. This, this professor who does, creates books uh, on for cosmology, which is advanced students in physics, astrophysics. And the first words out of his mouth were, John Dobson is here. You see? <laughs> so he had to confront this man, John Dobson, who is implying that beneath the universe that we think we see is a universe of reality which goes right back to infinity. John Dobson is marvelous about this. He talks about electricity and, and uh, gravity and inertia as being hidden indicators that underneath lies something which is infinite, unchanging. You see, things like that. That these are the hints that we get, like the frayed edge of a rug. And my friend, the, the, the man who's standing there saying, well, this is what we find. These black holes are here. We don't quite understand how they're related, but now they're finding they're the center of every major galaxy. And yes, the equations say that mass and energy go to infinity <laughs> at the heart of a black hole. Well, I like to think that it's Brumman peeking out into the relative plane. 
And if there are enough black holes in Troy as this thing expands, and if everything goes back into black holes, we've got the oscillating universe that the Indians speak about, in which emanation occurs, and then after a while, involution occurs, and we go back to infinity. And this has happened over and over again, and there's no end to it. So there's not that much difference between us and these, uh, these physicists that uh, don't want to have a Big Bang in any, in any meaningful sense. I like the Big Bang for all kinds of reasons. It's satisfying from the human point of view to think God takes a little rest. That is to say that we get all to go back home someday, even the atoms. Teilhard de Chardin, the great scientist priest, speaks of every atom rushing into the arms of God and full consciousness. Uh, this new concept that's coming out now, which is gaining some momentum, says that, well, we may still get to have instead of a universe that just keeps on going and then, as the latest thing is, plunges like a waterfall into black holes and becomes one with infinity again, goes out, comes back. That's, that's the, the view that I like and the view that most astronomers still hold on to and physics, physicists. Well, what happens in a case like that? They're saying that, that what we have is a slow process, and it's much slower than the, the, the usual um, cycle, which is, I don't know, a few billion years out, a few billion years back, that we're living in a kind of a, a world in which there is a, a membrane-like situation. We may have the observable universe, and we have a, may have a more subtle dimension. Some spiritual people think that's so. Some people think that there's a, the gross body and then the things that stand behind our senses, which we carry with us into the next round before we receive a complete illumination. And in the, in the great chain of being, which we find raises us, raises uh, evolution, raises the organisms to a higher and higher level of, uh, of consciousness, eventually uh, coming out in the illumined souls who see where they came from and where they're going and that they were always one and infinitely one with God, this new view has a concept that, yes, we will return. We will return to a state which the mystics speak of as infinity and which the equations of these, uh, these mathematically oriented uh, um, physicists are also calling Infinity, though they're quite surprised by that. You see, what we're dealing with in terms of a conscious universe, what Fred Allen Wolf calls a dreaming universe, is something so far beyond the world of the mechanic, bless him. And the mechanic is also God's spirit working, you see, in this way. But those scientists who are such reductionists that all they think they see is hard rock marble out there and even go to the point of denying a psyche in man, the behaviorists come very close to that. How much glory, how much beauty, how much wonder, how much joy they're missing. The dreaming universe. Uh, Fred Hoyle, who is one of my favorite people, was, he thought, uh, the world thought, an atheist He's the one that wanted to have a steady-state universe which matter kept coming in, filling like a bathtub, and kept going out. He gave it up in favor of an oscillating universe 
That means it expands and contracts, just like as the uh, Indians have been saying for years. In a publication in 1965 with an Indian astronomer, this seems to be so close to the ancient Indian view that, frankly, it needs no further explanation. But Fred Hoyle thought that in order for reality to be created, a quantum wave had to travel out into the future. This is sheer poetry. This is obscure poetry. And a feedback from the hope for a future event had to return in time to the present time. Sometime, somehow this man felt that Beethoven was accessing information to just show you how imaginative they can become from the future to the present. Otherwise, Beethoven being stone deaf, how is he composing the symphony number nine, the ode to joy? He believed the future somehow determines the options of the present. Albert North Whitehead, who was a physicist, was a, was a mathematician and a physicist too, had the same concept. So he had both philosophy and poetry in his soul. In his unpublished paper, The Universe, Past and Present, <coughs> reflections on this, he had these ideas, this man whom they called an atheist. <coughs> but between Fred Hoyle's view and George Gamow's view, that we have an oscillating universe that comes from the arms of Brahman and returns thereto cyclically, I see a big difference. So Beethoven said, how do you sing at the piano? You feel the melody. And my friend Sam Klein, who is quite a philosopher and very erudite, <coughs> says this whole journey through the universe, he says it's all about the Lord Chaitanya, who had his band of musicians, of minstrels, of whom we feel we are some. We're the little elves singing along with Chaitanya, <coughs> singing his way through the stars. Let's sing him a song.
like to, to share a, a kind of a poem with you in that something wondrous is going to happen next Friday night at 7.30 here in the temple. And if you're game enough and interested enough and woman and man enough to enter into the world of Alice in Wonderland that we've really been talking about today, haven't we? You know, Swamiji read Alice in Wonderland when he was in South Pasadena. I believe he read it out loud to the Mead sisters, the grandchildren, the, the old granddaddy there. He said, oh, this is Vedanta. <laughs> this make-believe world that underneath has a deeper reason than reason knows of, as Pascal used to say things like that. So the story goes that a man from Missouri, I don't know if you know any of them, I do well, they're part of my culture from the Middle West, grounded, had a dream. In the dream, he sees some men in orange robes. You're trying to figure it out, and they're, they're doing something with bowls, making sound come out. So in the dream, he asked somebody, what are they? And he said, they're monks. Well, within three or four days, just like a Mark Twain story, you know, coming out of uh, Missouri, uh, a peddler comes to town with singing bowls. And he lets this fellow kneel, have about six of them, take them home with him, play them. So he does. And he brings them back. And he's enchanted. And he realizes he can't pay for them. So he says, well, you know, these, these are wonderful, but um, maybe another time. I, I just don't feel I have the money right now. So this man gets a bowl. Hang on. We're, we're out there now among the stars, you know. He gets a bowl that was made by the second Dalai Lama in, let's say, 1476, back in the 1400s, which had come into the keeping of the present Dalai Lama. And somehow, goodness knows how and why, He'd given it to this peddler and said, when you find a man or a woman who really appreciates this, give it to him. So the man says, I'm giving it to you. I don't think he knew about the dream. And then a few years later, this is ratcheting it up. You don't need to tell people about this story, okay? This is just between the two of us, all right? A few years later, the man's in St. Louis. Neil is at a conference, big conference, to which the Dalai Lama is, uh, he, he's attending this conference. And the Dalai Lama comes up to the man sight unseen and said, I'm glad you got the bowl I sent you. Now, he's still a Missourian. You know these Missourians. They, they're grounded. They're grounded. He's a wonderful man. He's coming on Friday night with singing bowls, enough to lend you some. I encourage you come as a scientist as an experimenter, seeing the joy that's in the heart of this man and walking through the universe, and bring your own bowls. And things begin to happen that are just exquisite. There's a level of joy. There's a level of something deep within the soul of every great musician that happens in this man's presence. So you're welcome at 7.30 on Friday night to meet Neil and his singing bowls. He's had other things happen in his time. He, uh, he uh, goes on Alice in Wonderland trips in his mind, waking and perhaps dreaming, and he gets into a land of enchantment. And yet he's a wonderfully uh, uh, down-to-earth, as we say in the Little West, wonderful kind of fellow. So come if you can. 
with or without your bowls. And now, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May he make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace, peace, peace.